Island Girls are a surf band out of Nova Scotia, Canada, and they've given us permission to play the song Beach Leech. It's from their self-titled album, The Island Girls, and we're using it to open up episode 314 of the podcast devoted to the classic and sometimes not so classic genre cinema of yesteryear. I'm your host, writer, producer, Derek M. Cook. Welcome to the show. I'm excited to have you here because we are talking about a movie by one of the patron saints of Monster Kid Radio, Bela Lugosi. Way back in the day when we first started the show, I actually used a slightly different tagline. I said Monster Kid Radio is where Karloff is king, Bela Lugosi lives, and John Agar rules. And I mean that Lugosi lives here on the podcast. The man, just entertaining, endlessly entertaining. I can't get enough Bela Lugosi. I don't care if it's a big budget universal film or a poverty row horror film. And that's what we're talking about this time around. The classic, not so classic, you know, the William Bodine joint, the movie, The Ape Man. And I'm talking about it with somebody that I have podcasted with before, but he's never been here on Monster Kid Radio. Author, film historian, Troy Howarth. He's going to be joining me here shortly to talk about The Ape Man. It's a great conversation. I had a lot of fun editing it. And... Again, big thanks to my man Tom Doffel, our personal cyber Dr. Frankenstein for Monster Kid Radio, because he was able to recover the data off the hard drive that crashed a little bit ago. This was one of the interviews that I thought I had lost. So big thanks to Tom. Because of Tom, you're going to get to hear this conversation with me and Troy. Before we get to that, though, I just want to say uh, thank you to everybody who's reached out to me, either by email or on Facebook. Last week, I talked about how we lost our cat, Lovey, and it has meant a lot uh, to hear from so many Monster Kids and Monster Kid Radio listeners. I really appreciate it. It's been tough. It's been a challenge, obviously. Anybody who has a pet and has gone through this knows it's difficult, and it's just, it's tough. So thank you so much. Along those lines, I want to bring up another one of Monster Kid Radio's really good friends, Larry Underwood, also known as Dr. Gain Green. He's been on the show quite a bit. Uh, He's a dear, dear friend of mine, and he too also recently lost a pet. He lost his dog, Buster, and just, it's tough. I mean, as somebody who just recently went through that myself, I know it's difficult. So Larry, if you're listening, I'm dedicating this episode to you and Buster, man. So I'm sorry for your loss, my friend. All right, let's get on to the episode. Me and Troy Howarth, we're going to talk about The Ape Man, talk a little bit about film music, because I I can't not talk about film music, and a few other things along the way. That's all coming up right after this. Journey into double terror with the late night double feature with X, the fiend from beyond space, and the wall people. A crew of interstellar explorers must fight an unstoppable alien fiend from beyond space, hell-bent on consuming them all. Will they survive? Can they survive? And on the same program, a man must fight to save his only child from the clutches of strange invaders who use their advanced technologies to steal sleeping children through their bedroom walls. Are your children safe? Two terrors to tear you apart in the late night double feature. How often has this happened to you? You're on your way home after a long day, 
when suddenly tragedy strikes. No human mind could imagine the enormous destructive power of this maddened, killing thing. Yes, sir, there's a big lizard back there and he's heading this way. Now get aboard! It's the kind of thing which can ruin your weekend. To prevent catastrophe, you need the handbook for surviving a giant monster attack. This book features extensively researched methods to help you survive a giant monster event. You'll discover which vehicle you should use for making your escape, which method of counterattack is best for specific types of monsters. Hydrogen weapons, capable of wiping cities, countries off the face of the earth, are completely ineffective against this creature from the skies and what common mistakes people make while fighting back. So pick up your copy of The Handbook for Surviving a Giant Monster Attack by Anthony Wendell today on Amazon. You can thank us by surviving. After 70 million years, Dinosaurs! Roaring, walking, destroying, Dinosaurus! The most amazing adventure since the beginning of time, Dinosaurus! For these people, there could only be shock and dismay. For who among them could believe that out of the primordial slime had come these creatures? The huge Brontosaurus, the ferocious Tyrannosaurus, even a primitive caveman. Panic-stricken, horrified, did they have the courage, the ingenuity to survive? How do we get word out, hacker? Mailboat will be in tomorrow morning. By tomorrow we could all be dead. We are going to be friends, you and me. Sights never before seen on the screen. A 60-ton dinosaur tamed by a small boy and a caveman. A caveman loose in a modern home. The death duel of the dinosaurs. A girl caught by the dread Tyrannosaurus. The battle between giant monster and monster machine. The moat of fire. It's holding him. Yeah, but for how long? I am Dracula, and I bid you welcome to the podcast devoted to the classic, and sometimes not so classic, genre cinema of yesteryear. And I offer you this warning. Sometimes Derek and his guests get excited, and they may spoil a movie or two. You know how excited monster kids can get sometimes. If Monster Kid Radio spoils a movie for you, do not come whining to me. I cannot stand whines. Listeners, I'd like to welcome to Monster Kid Radio for his first appearance on this podcast, author, DVD commentarian, is that a title? 
Troy Howarth, welcome to the show. Well, thank you for having me. You know, Troy and I recorded an episode for the Dorado Films podcast back when I was doing that. So this is not the first time he and I have chatted, but it's the first time you've been on MKR. I'm excited to chat with you, sir, especially since I stumbled across a little bit of information the other day. You're doing one of the commentaries for the upcoming Blu-ray release from Arrow Video of Kaltiki, the Immortal Monster. Yes, uh, it's my first uh, opportunity to do a commentary on a, a Mario Bava film, so that's that was uh, particularly welcome, and uh, I recorded it uh, a couple months ago, so it's it's been in the can, so to speak, for a while now, and I had a good time doing it, so hopefully you'll enjoy listening to it. Kaltiki is one of those movies that I've always felt deserves a really nice transfer and presentation, and knowing that Arrow's going to be doing it. Did they come to you, or did you go to them? Uh, no, they came to me, amazingly enough. Uh, wow! I, I, I've sort of lucked into all of these things. I've not really had to go sniffing around uh, very much but uh Kaltiki has never really had a, a, a really nice video release anywhere really in the world the best uh, version was released on dvd in italy i can't even remember if that version had an english uh, track or the english subtitles on it probably not so this is really the first time you're going to get a chance to really fully appreciate mario baba's uh, exceptional lighting and special effects work i think that italian dvd's got great cover art i love the artwork on that but I will sacrifice the artwork from the Italian DVD to have a nice transfer on Blu-ray. That's going to be a treat. I know Arrow tends to have reversible covers, so I know they have some new artwork on the front, but I don't know if they'll have the original poster art on the back or not. It'll be a nice package. Fantastic. Now, this isn't the only movie that you've done a commentary for. I know that you've got an upcoming release from Dorado Films, going back to them. Night of the Scorpion you're doing the commentary on. Can we talk about that? Is that public knowledge, or should I cut this whole bit? <laughs> oh, no, no. They, uh, they've already announced it. Actually, that was a, a very interesting title for me to do because it ties in with a book that I'm doing. The third volume is So Deadly, So Perverse. Uh, this third volume, it's going to be the final volume, uh, focuses on Jallo-style thrillers made outside of Italy. So this is a Spanish movie that's very much in the Jallo mold. And it's, a, it's a pretty good movie. It's um, probably by the, the standards of the uh, diehard Jallo fans. It might be a little slow and talky uh, for some of them, but uh, I think it's got nice mood and atmosphere. And uh, once again, I had a good time talking about it and uh, discussing the, the people involved in it and its place in that whole movement of Jallo cinema. Fantastic. That's exciting. And I always love to hear about monster kids doing good and getting involved in commentary tracks or writing books and that sort of thing. So, Troy, I'm going to be watching what you're doing for the next couple of years. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. I've been at this for a long time, uh, off and on, and you know, it's uh, by no means an overnight sort of thing that I've had some small measure of success so it's it's nice to finally have some things out there and people reading them and giving me some good feedback like i said you and i have talked a little bit on the dorado films podcast back when i was doing that but this is your first time on monster kid radio and there's a game that we play with every new guest it's called the classic five and here's how it works i've got a deck of cards here i've been shuffling it here while you've been talking and each one of these cards has a question about classic monster movies yes or no this or that style questions there's no wrong answer it's just kind of a fun little game to let the listeners know a little bit more about you you want to play the classic five? Oh sure all right so starting at the top here card number one which movie do you prefer the amazing colossal man or attack of the 50-foot woman well that's a tough one. I, I don't know that we, I, we could call either one of them necessarily stellar cinema, but they're both fun for what they are. I am an Allison Hayes fan, though, so I'm going to have to go with the, uh, the 50-foot woman. Excellent. Like I said, no wrong answers, man. <laughs> <Except> <laughs> <that one. laughs> All 
All right, card number two. What prop from a classic monster movie would you like to own? That's a tough one. You know, it's funny. The one that, that pops into my head right away is is one from a movie that I like. It's not anywhere close to my favorite, but the one that comes to my mind is the, uh, the silver-headed cane from The Wolfman. That's a very, very popular answer, and how amazing would it be to have that? Yeah, I'd settle for a replica, but, you know. Yeah, it would be <laughs> nice to have the one that was actually held by uh, Claude Rains and, and Lon Chaney Jr., but uh, a replica would be fine. That, that just leaps into my mind. I'm sure a lot of people think of it for that reason. It's just a very stylish-looking prop. I've had this conversation with my wife that if it ever gets to a point where I need to walk with a cane, he's got to have that wolf head on it. <laughs> you and me both. <laughs> All right, card number three. I was a teenage werewolf, or I was a teenage Frankenstein. Oh, you know, I like both of those films very much. Uh, I, I was a teenage Frankenstein has some great bitchy dialogue from uh, from Whit Bissell. Werewolf's a little bit better, though. Yeah, I was a teenage werewolf. Uh, it, it, I think so, too. So I agree with you. But I love teenage Frankenstein so much. And I think it's because of Whit Bissell. I like the makeup, even though it's it's sort of crude. But I think that that's kind of effective in its own way. It's There's something to be said for that kind of patchwork approach. Are you going to be going to Monster Mash this year? Unfortunately, no. I won't be oh, present this year. Because I think Gary Conway is going to be a guest. That's why I was asking. Oh, yeah. I thought I saw that. Yeah. yeah. I, I, if I were making it, I would certainly stop. Well, if I do stop down, I'll certainly stop by and, and snag his autograph. Of course. Yeah. Seems like a great guy. All right. Card number four. Favorite classic monster movie sequel? Well, I guess uh, the inevitable one has to be Bride of Frankenstein. Again, very popular answer, and with good reason. Yeah, it's it's a remarkable movie. I mean, I suppose you could you could argue it's not perfect. Obviously, it's it has its its problems. There was some uh, post production tinkering and some little problems here and there with it. But what an imaginative movie, and what a wonderfully perverse movie too. I I never tire of it. Oh, it's twisted in the most delightful of ways. It's so good. Absolutely. So good. All right, final card, final question. Oh, to keep a line with the Frankenstein theme. Favorite actor to play Dr. Frankenstein? Oh, Peter Cushing. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> I have to go with Peter Cushing, although I did love uh, uh, Colin Clive, of course, and if we count the uh, the sequels, I also was very fond of Basil Rathbone and Sir Cedric Hardwick, but uh, yeah, I got to go with Peter Cushing. Longtime listeners of mine here and on my old Hammer Films podcast know that I'm on Team Cushing 100%. So, yes. See, this is why you and I can talk. We can get along. Well, I hope so. <laughs> All right. Well, that was the Classic Five. How do you feel? Uh, I feel refreshed. There you go. You survived. Excellent. I did. All right. Now, the movie that we're going to be talking about did not come up in the Classic Five. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. We're going to be talking about a movie from 1943 starring another one of my absolute favorites, Bela Lugosi. It's The Ape Man. So it's his fault. <laughs> <laughs> I was desperate. 
you know, I say that, but I don't want to. I don't want listeners to think that I didn't dislike. I dislike this movie. I love this movie. Actually, I, I love anything with Lugosi. Are you a Lugosi fan? Oh God, yes. I, I've been a Bill Lugosi fan for as long as I can remember. It's hard for me to recall what my first, you know, sort of horror movie experience was, but I have. I have a memory of being very, very small and watching uh, Dracula, you know, in the living room with my parents, and uh, that sticks in my mind is probably the earliest uh, horror movie memory I have. So, Bill Lugosi's uh, and a longtime friend, so to speak. Wow, I feel like for me, they they've always been with me. These classic monster movies, even though I didn't discover them until much later in my movie watching, you know, career, I guess you could say. But I've always felt. Like they've been there, and Lugosi and Karloff are right there. In fact, one of the cards in the Classic Five, which did not come up, is who do you prefer, Karloff or Lugosi? Because I know those are the big two. Oh, just who? Who do you prefer? Is it fair to say you can pick one or the other? I, I do. I mean, I think it's possible to love both, and I do love them both. But I have to say, I think Karloff was the better actor. Um, mm-hmm. It's the same thing with you know Hammer versus Universal, and any of those other you know Christopher Lee versus Bela Lugosi or whatever. It's okay to have a preference, but still love them both. And, uh, I certainly do. I'm right there with you, too. I think Karloff was a master of his craft. I think Lugosi was also very good, but got dealt kind of a bum hand a lot of times. And Well, I suspect know, that we're going to be talking a lot about that as we're yeah. going to talk about the ape man, because uh, the ape man is, <laughs> is, is far from a uh, actor at the top of his, uh, at the top of his game in, in terms of where he was at in his career at the time. I mean, he was trying. He was doing what he can do. And, and I don't think I've ever seen Lugosi ever really phone anything in. I mean, he always worked as hard as he could with his material. But Well, it's interesting because I say I prefer Karloff, and I do, but I, I have seen Karloff go through films where he obviously was, was a little bit uh, uh, disinterested in the material. I mean, I haven't seen every single film that Lugosi was in, but I've seen a good chunk of them. And even in the worst of them, it always seemed as though he really was trying his best to to elevate the material somehow. Well, he's got this charisma. You can't help but watch him. And, of course, you know, because of the accent, he's got that alienness factor that makes him a great villain in a lot of these genre films. Yeah, and he could also play heroes rather yeah. sympathetically as well. Like in The Invisible Ray, he's, he's wonderful in that. A very understated, sympathetic character in that film, or especially... Um, the Black Cat, where he goes up against Karloff's villain, and uh, he's he's tremendously sympathetic in that one as well. That's where I was going to go with this. I don't think people give him enough credit for the non-monstrous, the non-villain roles. The Black Cat is amazing. The Invisible Ray, I don't think people think too much about when they think about Lugosi in a, in a quote-unquote good guy role. He's great. Oh, yeah. I thought he was wonderful in that. It was, uh, it was interesting because when I first saw The Invisible Ray when I was a kid, I recall being disappointed with the Lugosi factor because it seemed to me he wasn't in it very much. But then I saw it again years later and I thought, well, yeah, his screen time isn't as much as, as Karloff's and he doesn't have as much flashy stuff to do in it as Karloff does. But I think he gives it a great uh, weight and a great dignity. And, and again, I think he comes across with, with great warmth in that movie, which is something he didn't often get a chance to do. Exactly. Now, for whatever reason, Karloff's career went one way, Lugosi's one another. <laughs> he ended up making a number of I think that's what they're called. Well, I think yeah, there's been a book. Even, I mean, this, there's yeah. even a book on them by uh, Tom Weaver, which um, I highly recommend. It's called Poverty Row Horrors. And, uh, yeah, Bela was pretty much, for all intents and purposes, the, uh, the king of Poverty Row. Um, Karloff also did some Poverty Row stuff. I mean, he worked for Monogram as well. He did the... Um, 
the Mr. Wong mysteries for them, and he also did the um, the Ape. Uh, so he wasn't above doing movies for Poverty Row, but Lugosi spent a good deal of his time there in the forties. And uh, I suppose when it comes to horror film actors uh, of that period, the only other one who who spent as much time at Poverty Row as he did was uh, George Zuko. Yeah. And a couple of times they worked together, even like yeah. Voodoo Man, right? Yeah, they were in Voodoo Man together. Uh, they were in Scared to Death together. Um, that happened because uh, Lionel Atwell passed away. He was supposed to have been in uh, the George Zuko role, but Zuko was a good replacement as replacements go. And they were supposed to be together in Return of the Ape Man. Uh, I suppose that topic will come up uh, during this talk as well, but they're not really together in it, despite what the credits say. Not really connected, but yeah. Anyway, yeah. Poverty Row. Um, you mentioned Monogram Republic Pictures was another studio. PRC or Producers Releasing Corporation was another studio involved in that that movement, I guess, or tier of filmmaking. You know, Monogram wasn't quite the bottom of the barrel. I think PRC was a little bit worse. They cranked out movies in all kinds of different genres. Uh, Sam Katzman was the, uh, the sort of head honcho over at Monogram, and they cranked them out at, at an alarming rate. Horror films, musicals, action movies, westerns, you name it. Uh, anything that was popular that audiences would respond to. And uh, Monogram ended up making a total of nine films with Bela Lugosi between 1941 and uh, 1944. I had a list here a second ago. Do you know what the other titles were? I do. Uh, as a matter of fact, I can, I can even give you a little bit of uh, background here, which I pulled from the Poverty Row Horrors book. Which, again, I am also going to recommend. Great book. It is. It's very good. It has a lot of uh, very interesting background material on these films. Not always terribly sympathetic towards them, but then again, you know, we're, we're not dealing with high art here. They're, they're just fun movies to watch. The first Bela Lugosi monogram horror film was a movie called The Invisible Ghost, which was filmed in March of 1941 and then released in April of 41. Now, that tells you how quickly these people were working you know, from March wow. to April to film something, edit, and everything else, put it in theaters. This was followed then by Spooks Run Wild, which was filmed in June of 41 and then released in October of 41. Then you had Black Dragons, made in January of 42 and then uh, released in March of 42. The Corpse Vanishes, uh, which was made in March of 42 and released in May of that year. Bowery at Midnight was made in August of 42 and then released in October that year. That brings us up to The Ape Man, which was uh, done around Christmas time of 42 and then released in March of 1943, followed by Ghosts on the Loose, uh, which was filmed in February of 43, released in July of 43, Voodoo Man, which was made in October of 43 and then released in February of 44, and The Return of the Ape Man was made in October of 43 and released in June of 44. So that, that had actually sat on the shelf for a little while. I'm not quite sure why. Yeah, it seems like a longer post-production period or something. Not sure what happened there. but I know that, uh, as I mentioned before, G George Zuko was originally cast in the role of the ape man. And there's actually uh, at least one still of him in the makeup. And I think he just decided, you know what, I don't need the money this badly. I have to get out of this. So he claimed to be sick and got out of the role. He's still building it, uh, but nevertheless, that, that might have had something to do with slowing things down a little bit, but certainly not long enough to account for that big gap between uh, October and June. So not quite sure what happened. There. Well, comparatively big gap compared to the other movies anyway. Uh, a longer post-production period, I mean, these days is 
fairly common back then. It's not like they're playing with a lot of computer graphics and doing a lot of color correction. You know, shoot it, edit it, get it out. Yeah, and, and pretty make much. Money. Even even at Universal, they were they were very quick and very efficient about getting things out, but perhaps not quite as efficient as something as like uh, the Invisible Ghost, for example. Which again, you know, within a couple of months, you talk about a movie going on the sound stages and then being projected in theaters and shot with a director who's known for only doing one take. William Bodine. Yeah, one-shot Bodine. And uh, here's a director with quite an imposing filmography. We always talk about Jess Franco and how ridiculously prolific he was. Well, beat your heart out, Jess Franco. Uh, Bill Bodine directed, is credited with at least 350 uh, features, uh, shorts, and TV episodes, probably even more. Obviously, this is a man who just uh, pretty much went from one project to the next, cranked them out, and uh, he earned the name of One Shot Bodine because as, as long as the actors uh, got through the take and nothing uh, too disastrous happened, just, you know, cut, print, and let's move on to the next setup. Exactly. Yeah, the guy was very efficient. <laughs> I suppose that's one way to put it. Yeah. He had some classier credits back in the silent era, uh, uh-huh. which indicate that he, he wasn't without talent, but... You know, by the 30s, he was working exclusively in, in absolute B-grade movies, and uh, that's what he did. And, you know, to his credit, he, he made some very entertaining movies, and uh, he certainly was an efficient traffic cop, but uh, beyond that... <laughs> that's a great way to put it. <laughs> well, I, I don't think you could really... Uh, well, let's put it this way. I'd be very interested to see if anybody would want to write an auteur study of, of, of William Bodine uh, and his aesthetic. Nevertheless... He did direct several of these movies with Lugosi, including Ghosts on the Loose, uh, Voodoo Man, and a, a later film, not from Monogram, but with uh, the immortal title of Bela Lugosi Meets a Brooklyn Gorilla. Oh, that's a great title. If nothing else, sign me up for the title. Yeah, well, that, <laughs> uh, that had him uh, facing the most horrific uh, uh, foe of his career in the form of um, a comedy team that was a ripoff of uh, Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis. Jerry Lewis is bad enough in his, on his own terms, as far as I'm concerned, but then you see Sammy Petrillo and you realize it could be a lot worse. You know, Bodine, like you said, he was all over the map, did one movie to the next, after the next, after the next, and you didn't just do genre pictures, obviously. You, you can't have a career like that. But I think he's probably very well known to Monster Kids for things like Billy the Kid versus Dracula, Jesse James meets Frankenstein's daughter, which to me, are absolutely delightful films. You said earlier these movies aren't high art, and they're certainly not, but man, they make me smile. So they're a good movie as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, those were actually his last films, as a matter of fact. Uh, that He yep. finished his career with those two back-to-back. And uh, I mean, what can you say? What, what do you expect with a title like that? I mean, you, you can't go into it expecting Citizen Kane or The Godfather. Um, <laughs> it delivers what it's supposed to deliver, and... Uh, if it appeals to you, then that's that's good. Uh, there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. They were meant to be entertaining. And they absolutely succeeded. And even though The Ape Man does have this kind of weird, surreal kind of feel to it, I was entertained. So good on you, Mr. Bodine. <laughs> well, it's a strange movie. It, it, it introduces a, a very unusual uh, kind of uh, meta flourish that would be repeated later on in Voodoo Man, also directed by Bodine. With the idea of the the scriptwriter playing a direct role in the plot, which was, I think, a <laughs> very unusual idea for the time. I think it works better in Voodoo Man. It, at the very least, it's less obnoxious than it is in this one. Yeah, when you're watching the Ape Man and this character is 
kind of lurking about looking like he's in the wrong movie. He does stick out quite a bit. And then the reveal at the end. Okay. All right. He's an actor named Ralph Littlefield, about uh, whom I know virtually nothing. I I can say that he obviously was um, not Sir Lawrence Olivier. He he doesn't come across as the greatest actor in the world. But I did notice him when I recently watched uh, Bowery of Midnight. He plays a very small role in that. So that's another Lugosi film that he participated in. But I guess this is his uh, probably his largest role. and, And if it's any indication, you can see why that is. It doesn't look like he ever really got credited. If you do a little bit of research on him and all of his movie roles are so-and-so uncredited, so-and-so uncredited. So he didn't really get a lot of notice. Uh, And maybe there's a reason for that. I don't know. Yeah, he does kind of stick out a little bit in The Ape Man. He doesn't seem to fit. Again, there's a reason for that. It does make The Ape Man feel like it would have been a really weird kind of stage play with the character coming out and talking to the audience at the end well it it makes you wonder you know it's a little unclear from watching it was it written as a comedy was it written as a little bit of a spoof uh did did bodine and uh lugosi and company not quite pick up on that or or were they sending it up a little bit it's hard to say because it certainly it provides a lot of chuckles but are they deliberate or is it just sort of uh, you know, is this just a result of something being thrown together in such a haphazard fashion? I'm not sure. I hadn't really considered looking at the Ape Man as a comedy, but I, I, I could see that, the pacing, the beats. It's weird. I mean, it's it's a very strange movie. It, it has a very childlike sort of logic to it, which is to say it hinges on a plot development which is never really explained. Uh, basically, we know that, that Lugosi is playing this uh, Dr. Uh, James Brewster, Probably they could have renamed James Brewster when they cast Bela Lugosi. I, I don't know. Maybe called him Laszlo Brewster or something like that to make him sound a little less all-American. I mean, it's, right, James yeah. Brewster is a character that Boris Karloff could have played, for example. Right. But he's he's discovered something to do with uh, the missing link. And he's developed this serum, which I don't know. Is it is it supposed to do anything other than turn somebody into an ape? And, and why does he want to turn into it's not really explained (laughs) no No, it's not I mean the explanation is obviously they want to have a movie called The Ape Man and and Bela Lugosi running around uh, looking ridiculous in this makeup so there you have it and have him injected and of course then he can't turn himself back into a human being again well he's trying and that's the whole point that's the whole push here is Lugosi or (laughs) Dr. Brewster played by Lugosi again yeah weird name for the naming choice but to have Dr. Brewster that's what he wants is he wants to be able to revert back to humanity and to do so he does what a mad scientist has to do (laughs) resort to some rather nefarious means to get the fluid that he needs to turn back and of course if he takes fluid from somebody well that person doesn't have their fluid anymore so of course you know people are dying there you go and, and there's there's the the story here we've got the cops investigating and a delightful wallace ford playing the reporter <laughs> oh i love wallace ford i'm a huge fan yeah well i mean he's he's interesting isn't he he's he's a very long in the tooth hero he's sort of tubby and he's he's not the usual conventional leading man and uh it's World War Two, and so they even have to explain that uh, he's being called up for service here very soon, so he needs to finish this case up. Right. Obviously, you just have to look at him, and you know he's past his he's past his sell by date to be in the uh, <laughs> to be in this act of service. But uh, nevertheless, he was he was available, and uh, I think he's good. I mean, I always enjoyed him. Of course, he you could see him as far back as as Freaks, where he plays uh, one of the very few sympathetic. Uh, quote-unquote normal people in the movie 
And he'd also been with Lugosi in a uh, horror film from 1933 called The Night of Terror. And he was in the first two Cars the Mummy movies for Universal. So. Right. Yeah, he's great as Babe. He's, for me, one of the standout characters in those films. Oh, I like, I mean, it's interesting in the, in, uh, in the Mummy's Hand, he's the comedy relief character, but then he comes back in The Mummy's Tomb and he's, he's older and much more serious. And he actually is quite good. And I don't know if it's, uh, you know, spoilers to, to get into movies from this vintage. I'm sure anybody listening to this probably already seen them, but it's, it's one of the most effective death scenes in the movie when he's killed off. He's trapped yeah. in an alleyway, and for once, there's a reason for, for Cars being able to catch up to him, and you hate to see him go. Yeah, I mean, he's great. He, he's a sympathetic character. He's fun to watch, and I enjoyed him in this. I feel like if he had more time with the material, he could have made his reporter character even better, but you do what you can do with the short amount of time you have to shoot your film. He showed up. He said his lines. He, he does the wisecracks. He does the double takes, and uh, he's very good with it. And, uh, he has a nice little bit of chemistry there with the leading lady, uh, Louise Curry, I believe her name is. Right. The photographer, Billy Mason. Yes. And, of course, that gives rise to the usual sort of, uh, you know, sexist back and forth of, of 40s movies. Uh, the uh, assertive female is trying to prove her worth, that she can be as, uh, as good as any man. So a little bit of feminist uh, slant there and she's also very good and they play off each other very well i think they do towards the end she kind of devolves into the screaming victim which a lot of these movies have when it comes to your female lead and she goes running into the arms of wallace ford at the end and you know it's it's of its time you you can only go so far with the uh, the strong independent uh, heroine usually that's what end up ends up happening although there were some exceptions but uh, by and large yes you could have a very strong plucky heroine throughout the movie but then when when the uh uh when the crap starts to hit the fan she she faints and starts screaming and it's it's up to the uh the quote-unquote young hero to come in and save the day right and there's a lot about this movie i mentioned a second ago it's of its time i mean clearly it's from the 40s it's a black and white movie people know it's an older film but there's a lot of things in here that really connect it to this time period you mentioned the world war ii reference we talk about the female hero and kind of not being the hero anymore once everything kind of goes down because you know it's really a, a man's got to do it i also found it interesting that the reporter character uh, jeff carter wallace ford's character he calls the police and police are like oh all right yeah i'll be right there no problem i don't see that happening now <laughs> Well, I mean, Alfred Hitchcock always said that people uh, don't call the police in his movies because they're boring, and, and there's something to be said for that, that usually when you get the police involved. If the police are involved in these films, usually they're inefficient, um, usually they're inept, they usually are played by people like Nat Pendleton or actors like that, these sort of big, uh, you know, Frank Phelan types, you know, big, big lugs who aren't very bright. You can even see it in the Basil Rathbone, uh, Sherlock Holmes films, where Dennis Hoey plays Inspector Lestrade as this kind of dim-witted comedy relief character. So the, the police usually aren't called in because the implication is they're just not very good at their jobs, so leave it to the intrepid reporter to do it instead. Exactly, right? I want to talk about a few of the other people in the cast. Uh, Dr. Brewster does have a kind of sort of partner, a Dr. George Randall, played by Henry Hall. I don't know much about some of these other cast members, so if you know anything about them, please chime in. you know anything about Henry Hall? I know that I have seen him in a number of films from that period. He's one of those character actors who very seldom warranted major billing and very, very rarely was uh, given uh, noteworthy roles. Uh, he doesn't really have a, a 
lot to do in this movie, but he does a, a reasonably professional job of it. I mean, nobody is really ultimately, I think, giving the performance of their, their careers in this movie, but uh, uh, off the top of my head, I can't recall any other credits, but I do know that he's one of those faces that very often, even if I sometimes forget his name, I'll say, oh, yes, I remember him from such and such a movie. Yeah. He does have that look, right? He's like, oh, he, he's in that film, and that film, he has that look, but you yeah, sorial look to him. He's he's going to play the scientist, or he's going to play the the academic who uh, the hero is going to go and, and consult with. Right. Yeah. Never never quite the lead, but yeah. Steady character actor. He probably. I mean, I'm sure uh, he he had a very long and uh, steady career doing those kind of character roles. Now, Doctor Brewster has a sister, and. For whatever reason, she's a ghost hunter spiritualist type. Doesn't really come up again in the film, but that, that seems to be the hook, which again is something that may have had some catchiness in the pop culture in the 40s. I don't know. But she's played by Minerva. Is it? Oh, I'm going to mispronounce the last name. I, I hate it when I do this. Erikal? Erisol? Well, that's how Erikal is how I've always okay. pronounced. I've never heard it pronounced before. So we'll just go with that. All right, Minerva. <laughs> Minerva, Minerva, dear Minerva. Yeah. Say, um, her character, it does kind of feel like they started out with that angle, like it was going to be important, and then they sort of forgot. Right. You do kind of feel like this movie was written on the back of some napkins at, at, a, at a restaurant, you know, during a lunch break or something, and you know, we'll make her a ghost hunter because there's going to be a ghost. Oh, crap, we forgot about the ghost. Yeah. <laughs> Change it now. Uh, yeah. <laughs> obviously, uh, could be unkindly described as being sort of a uh, a, a very uh, dour, hatchet-faced sort of a presence. Sure. It's not, it's another prolific character actress. Uh, she was also in two of the other Bill Lugosi monogram movies, uh, The Corpse Vanishes and Ghosts on the Loose, but The Ape Man was certainly her, her largest role of those, of those three films. She does seem to have quite... Uh, a credit list if you look into her a little bit and she was a sage actress too so i don't know if there's like a, a stage database you know sage actor database whether it's an internet movie database so i wouldn't even know anything about what roles she might have played on stage but she did a lot of tv work a lot of film shorts back in the 30s and 40s so quite a few films pretty comfortable in front of the camera and you're right about the way she looks if they had just changed those characters names instead of james and Minerva, well i guess minerva might be able to pull it off but you can totally pull these people off as a couple of immigrants just change the first names because she's got that look Lugosi's got the voice yeah well I mean she's called Agatha in the film and, and yeah she certainly looks like an Agatha but uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah that's true that's true I mean it reminds me of uh, my favorite of the Lugosi uh, poverty row horror films a movie called The Devil Bat oh yes and he plays a character introduced in the opening crawl as as kindly and beloved to dr james brewster i can't begin to tell you what's wrong with that statement uh, <laughs> anything remotely kind about him uh he's got a chip on his shoulder from the get-go he's he's as sinister as possible and james brewster and 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 names like that i mean obviously okay you didn't write it for lugosi obviously he wasn't the guy that they were writing it for maybe they were hoping to get Karloff. i don't know or lino atwell or george zuko or whoever but once you got lugosi give some acknowledgement of of the fact that the man is obviously not born and bred here in the usa right <laughs> give him a name that 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 suits him somewhat so yes i find that very amusing again you wouldn't even have to change the last name just just give him a, a more quote-unquote exotic sounding uh, first name Exactly. And I do wonder how much of that 
might have have been them being beholden to the original story. There are some resources or some references online to this being based on a short story called the They Creep in the Dark, which I'd love to read. So I have, I have not read it. I've not been able to track it down. Yeah, me neither. So listeners, if you have anybody's got any insight on that, I'd love to read the short story just to kind of see how it compares. It could be that, although, again, it makes you wonder, was it, was it a popular story at that time? And, and if it was, uh, would, you know, would people necessarily have remembered what the character names were? Of course, sometimes uh, these credits will make up sources just to make them sound more literary. So. That's true. The person who's quoted as writing... Uh they Creep in the Dark was actually more known as a cinematographer, so I don't know. It, yeah. well, maybe he wrote some little treatment uh, called They Creep in the Dark, so I, I don't know. I, I suspect with some of these character names, uh, it just makes sense to me that probably Ben Lugosi may not have been the guy that they initially had in mind, uh, but uh, you know, I mean, not to harp on it too much. It, no. It strikes me as amusing. It just seems like such a completely we're trying to not acknowledge the fact that he represents some sort of a foreign menace or something, which of course was very popular, especially in 40s movies where there was this kind of xenophobic attitude about foreigners, uh, you know, at the height of the war. Yeah, that might have had something to do with it. I think it's definitely possible, although, again, you know, obviously Lugosi was, had been a citizen here for, for many, many years and, uh, and so forth, but, uh, you know, his name was, remained Ben Lugosi. It, and become James Lagosi. So <laughs> James Lagosi just doesn't have the same ring to it. No, well, it's like uh, you know William Henry Pratt for Carla. So. Right, that's true. That's true. <laughs> there, there's something else in this movie that makes it feel definitively poverty row horror to me, and I'm a film score guy. I love my film music, but I do feel like a lot of these <laughs> films from this era, this the studio level, the music always has that same kind of just past a serial type of vibe. And, and the music in this does have that over and over and over again. I like it. it. It's comforting, but it does make it feel like it's all part of this. Yeah. Recycled stock music. And uh, I can't remember off the top of my head. I, I seem to recall there's quite a list of different composers whose music was uh, incorporated in these movies. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It, it's very familiar. There's, there's a lot of the same music cues that play over the opening titles, for example. It's that very sort of, as you say, very cliche. You could see it being played over some sort of cliffhanger serial type. Yes. Uh, a fist fight or, you know, the, the hero hanging off the edge of a cliff or something, and it's being recycled here. I don't know how this type of music would play for contemporary audiences. I think people would laugh at it now. Um, but it was even the same thing with the Universal horror films. I mean, they, they reused the same uh, Frank Skinner and, and Hans J. Salter music over and over and over again. I always loved hearing it. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with it at all. I mean, my my iPod, my my iPods are filled with music from this era of Skinner and the Steins and all of these. I just I love that stuff. It's yeah. I was listening to it. I was have when I was a little kid, and I first started seeing these movies. And you know, this is before the, you know, growing up in the '80s. This is before the sort of CD boom of of uh, soundtrack scores being released and. Uh, I used to attach my 
cassette recorder to the VCR and, and record the music uh, cues from these movies. So I had them on tape, and yeah, that's I've always listened to it. Yeah, you, me too. <laughs> I don't know what happened to all those cassettes over the years, but yeah, there there were plenty of uh, times sitting in front of the TV telling everybody in the living room to be quiet because I'm recording the end credit music. Come on. <laughs> you know, even if it's uh, I, recording it from The Ghost of Frankenstein, even though it's the same uh, music from the end of <laughs> another, another one, you know, just uh, got to get it there too, just for the sake of completion. I, I wish that more of these scores would show up on CD. I don't know if the original master tapes exist anymore. They probably don't. I know they did some very nice reconstructions of some of the Universal scores, for example. They're good as reconstructions go. Very, very good, as a matter of fact. But I always do prefer the original. Exactly. Earlier this year, I had David Schechter on the show from Monstrous Movie Music, and the work that he's done in terms of restoring some of these scores, finding the sheet music, having it redone, amazing. I mean, his CDs are top-notch, and I love that stuff. I do wish more of this stuff would come out, yeah. Didn't he do one for Creature from the Black Lagoon? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, it's fantastic. I can't stand when I listen to them. I, I hated... Well, hate's probably a strong word, but I strongly disliked. They did a silver screen recording of, of Hammer film music back in the, in the 90s, I think. And the orchestrations were just, to my ear, were completely different, completely off. And I, I don't want to hear a, a new interpretation. I want to hear something that sounds very much what was in the film. And uh, I know that uh, Creature from the Black Lagoon reconstruction was like that. Yes company did a great one for um, House of Frankenstein and for The Invisible Man Returns and some of the Frank Skinner, Sherlock Holmes music and so forth. When it sounds like it does in the film, that just makes me very, very happy. Well, and that's the point. I feel like that's for a lot of these movies, that's the one piece of merchandise that you can get and, and have that real true connection to the film. And yeah, yeah I mean, I, I'm a stickler for their film music I, this could turn into the film score kid podcast really easy but uh, go yeah sometimes it's also the the recording um yeah the, the limitations of the recording of the period you could easily pull all the different uh classical pieces that were on the soundtrack for the black cat for example and it wouldn't sound the same wouldn't have that same wonderful i hate to say tinny but it, you know that sort of tinny quality that it had it's just that specific recording the way that that sounded, its limitations. That's that's what really evokes the images of the movie for me. Yeah, it's it's the limitation of the era, which there's a good side, a bad side to it, whatever. But no, I mean, I love that stuff. And the music in this, I want to get back to this. There's a reason why there's not a composer listed for the eight man. It's a music director that's <laughs> listed. And you mentioned there being stock music. I mean, that's probably one of the biggest cost-saving measures that you can do in post-production is not have original music composed, just dip into your stock library that you already paid for once and, and go on. And, and the other studios did it too. I mean, there's a reason why Swan Lake appears in the credits of both Dracula and The Mummy at Universal. So you know, it's, it's yeah, you save a little bit of money, and you do what you do. Sure, absolutely, and and uh, you know the music is again, it's it's very uh, representative of the charm of these movies. I mean, you, you just have to hear a few beats from that uh, from one of those cues, and you think, oh yeah, that's the Ape Man, or that's Voodoo Man, or that's Bowery at Midnight, or whatever. It's it's just it has its own distinctive kind of quality. We're talking about Lugosi and a little bit about his career and such. What was it about Bela Lugosi that made him such a natural pairing to a man in a gorilla suit? 
<laughs> well, I wanted to mention the guy in the gorilla suit. Yeah. Because uh, he was played, uh, the ape in the movie is played by a guy named Emil Van Horn. That was his stock and trade playing guys in gorilla suits. And uh, he was like uh, Charles Gamora, who was in the Bela Lugosi version of Murders in the Room Morgue back in the 30s. Um, he always played gorillas. Presumably he had his own gorilla suit, which, again, saved the company some money. And <laughs> his other credits also included a couple of comedies. He did a W.C. Fields comedy called uh, Never Give a Sucker an Even Break, very famous movie. And an Abbott and Costello uh, comedy called Keep Him Flying. Mm-hmm. He always played a gorilla. I don't know that I've ever seen what the man really looked like in reality. So, Emil Van Horn, that's that's the guy in the gorilla suit in this particular movie. That that was kind of the thing. If you had a gorilla suit of your own, you could get cast as the. I mean, you didn't have to worry about the studio providing or doing the makeup. Gamora is probably the most well known, and, and for good reason. The man was a genius. But there were others that were doing it, like this guy here. Again, I don't know why they would put Lugosi with a man in an ape suit. Uh, you know, motors in the rumor. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, you know, Lugosi uh, at at this stage, he was he was sixty when he made this film. I think, arguably, in some respects, this was at this point the low point of his career. I think this film and the one that he made directly before it were the movies that just absolutely showed him in the worst possible light, and really, I think, were the about the only two movies that stripped him of his dignity. Right before this, he made Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman for Universal. Mm-hmm. And obviously, some people are very fond of, of the performance. I can't say that I am, but regardless, it had to have been a completely humiliating, demeaning, and, and exasperating experience for him. He was obviously getting on in years. He was physically not up to the demands of the role. Most of the part is actually doubled for him by Eddie Parker, I think the guy's name was, a stuntman at Universal. The makeup, the, the costuming, the fact that you know, the heat from the lights and uh, everything else caused him to actually collapse on the set at one point. So, and and he was playing a part that he had often derided in interviews as you know any moron, any halfwit can play this part. And he said that any time he had to go, he he felt like a jackass. So he 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 had already done this movie uh, for Universal, where I think. Yes, he was happy to be working, and, and I'm sure he was happy to be being paid, but I think he really felt embarrassed by it. Then he comes over to Poverty Row, and he has to put on this ludicrous makeup and stoop around and swing his arms around like he's half-man, half-gorilla, and the ape-man. Uh, you tell me, this this man from, from Hungary who had had a very distinguished stage career, had been a matinee idol, something of a sex object back in his day, uh, a distinguished actor, a leading man almost big-time movie star in Hollywood who unfortunately made some bad mistakes and, and his career didn't go quite the way that it did. Um, I think probably, I can't think of any other two films that he made in his career where he was made to look more ridiculous than he did in these two films. Both made wow. in 1942 and both in theaters in, uh, in the same month in 1943. So I think he probably was not feeling terribly proud at that moment. You know, there's a lot of things in this movie that do hit close to home. Fans of Lugosi know, and the man had his demons, you know, and, and he had issues with drugs. And to see this film and to see him playing a character that's trying to get an injection so desperately, it's 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 a little, you know. That's a good point. And 
I'm not sure if he was already on the morphine by this point. He might have been. Uh, should emphasize he wasn't a um, what you would call a recreational drug user. He was prescribed right, for, right, for for terrible um, sciatic pain. And as somebody who uh, gets occasional flare-ups of sciatic, I believe me, I I can sympathize. It's completely debilitating. You can't you can barely walk. He wasn't doing it for kicks. In other words, he he. You know, he was prescribed at a time when they used to prescribe this thing uh, much more readily, and then obviously it got hold of him. Yes, definitely, you can look at that uh, that aspect, and it, it can't help but remind you of, of his problems later on, which is a little bit sad. It, it's an aspect of this movie that, for me, although I enjoy the movie, gives it a little bit of a um, slightly unpleasant edge compared to, to his other Poverty Row horror films. It, it, it does feel sometimes like it's cutting a little too close to the bone. In that, in that yeah. Yeah, there, there is that edge to it. And the other thing about this movie that that really kind of struck me last night when I was watching it, I don't know, you can take a real step back and take a real good meta look at the film. And it feels a lot like Lugosi's career to me. You you have this younger Dr. Brewster everybody loves, you know, this guy's very well known, very well liked, and he does some things and he starts hunching over and he's the ape and he's dragging around with his, his knuckles on the floor and he, he tries real hard every once in a while. He does something and he gets able to stand straight up again. And he's proud of himself. He's a proud actor, a proud man, but it never lasts. And it always, he starts hunching back over again. And it just feels very analogous to kind of Lugosi's career, you know, at this point. He, he was on top of the world and then just slowly started hunching over again. Everyone's one could stand up, but then had to start hunching over again. I think that's a very good reading. And uh, I, I hadn't thought of it that way before, but I, I like that. I think that's a very good point. Interestingly, uh, the, the only glimpse that we get of Lugosi as James Brewster, you know, as he was, is a picture think it's shown in a insert from a newspaper at the beginning of the film yeah yeah and that's actually a picture of him from bowery at midnight yes. <laughs> that's lugosi playing a different role in a, a slightly classier poverty row horror film that was being filmed the summer of that year uh, whereas this one was being made again around christmas time so uh merry christmas to bella i guess i mean what a shame it, it it's um i mean actors act they work they need to work they need to pay the bills and um he had had some very bad uh, luck in his career. I think he made some very bad choices. He made some colossal mistakes when he was basically begging to play Dracula for Universal. And I think when he let it be known, "Hey, you guys can have me cheap," I want to. He wanted to play that role so badly because it was his signature role on stage. It's it's ridiculous in hindsight. It seems so you know inevitable that he should play it, but he wasn't anywhere close to being the first choice. Right. They were going to cast Conrad Veidt, who, who I, I will say I think probably would have been better. I think Conrad Veidt was, was probably a better actor than, well, not probably. I think he really was a better actor than Lugosi, but he was unsure of his English, so he decided to go back to Germany for a while. They were looking at various other actors, Chester Morris and, and Ian Keith, for example, and Lugosi just basically kept assaulting them with telegrams and and letters and you know please please pick me sort of it, which is very touching in a way i think it, it's it's rather sad but i think once they realize we've got this guy over a barrel universal treated him abysmally after that and and i don't think they treated him with the same respect that they treated karloff now now karloff of course did frankenstein and uh he was a complete unknown but he had a better sense of business and once he realized that his name was in demand 
he asked for the big bucks and he asked for the star treatment and they gave it to him because frankly he had earned it but Lugosi by virtue of having said hey you know I'll do this for you cheap I'm, you know I just want to do this it, it didn't help him in the long run I don't think it's unfortunate and he, he was begging to play Dracula he wanted to play Dracula so bad and then that would also be the role that would haunt him. He played it twice in movies. Right. Twice, two feature films. And I think there was a short where he plays against uh came to life, Betty Boop. Yeah. yeah. I, I don't know if he's identified as Dracula in that. He might be certainly yeah. for all intents and purposes. You have booped your last boop. He's <laughs> well, he had a sense of humor about himself, obviously. I think so. Too. Even in Abbott and Costello, me Frankenstein, where I think frankly, he gives a better performance than he did in the 1931 film. He wasn't the first choice there. They they still were looking at Ian Keith. And not many people know who Ian Keith is nowadays. He was actually a very good actor in his own right. He did a few of these Poverty Row horror films. He was with uh, George Zuko and Lionel Atwell in a movie called Fog Island, for example, which is, is rather good. Yeah, even at that point, Universal wasn't taking him very seriously. He only made, let me see, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. I think he only made seven films for Universal throughout the entire 1940s. And yeah. Abbott and Costello Meet Frankenstein was the last sort of classy film that he ever had a chance to make. Um, five years after The Ape Man, so obviously it was a big step up, but after that it was all straight downhill. Yeah, which is unfortunate. But we do have some wonderful films to watch. And, uh, you know, where does The Ape Man rank in terms of his filmography? I, I don't know. I, it's not very high, but I still really enjoyed it. The downside is that it's in the public domain, which means that everybody has put it out, which means the transfers are garbage. I have not found a good transfer of this yet. Have, have you found a good copy of this anywhere? No, I, I was going to say that my first exposure to it was back in the in the 80s and i'm sure you remember the the good old days of bargain bin oh yeah public domain vhs tapes hey i worked in video stores most of my, most of my younger years so yeah i i remember finding it i don't remember what label it was but my mom indulged me as she always did and, and bought it for me and i took it home and i remember watching it i, I loved it i mean it was it was bail lugosi's the ape man it was everything it said it was going to be so i loved it but I couldn't figure out at the time why my, my mom and my brother were, my older brother were, were laughing at it. <laughs> so I watch it now. It's like, well, yeah, I understand why they thought it was funny. All of those Poverty Row films, unfortunately, slipped into the public domain. All of them were treated very shabbily for many, many years. Although, amazingly, now at this point, Voodoo Man is available on Blu-ray through, through Olive. Yep. So that one's been rescued. Uh, I think Devil Bat has too, hasn't it? Yeah, Devil Bat got a really nice release from Kino. They also released a, a earlier film that Lugosi did from the 30s called The Death Kiss. Which I, I enjoy quite a bit. That's a good film. Not, not a good Lugosi film, so to speak, because he's not in it very much, but it's a good movie. Yeah, yeah, it's not really a horror film, but still great, great film. Yeah, it's one of those real borderline cases. It's only yeah. as Bela Lugosi, David Manners, and uh, Edward Van Sloan are in it from, from Dracula that people think of it as being horror. So some of them have been rescued, but the majority of these, uh, certainly the monogram movies, I'd love to see them released. I don't know that The Return of the Ape Man, for example, which despite the title was not a sequel to this film, has absolutely nothing to do with the Ape Man, uh, apart from Lugosi being in the film. I don't think I'd ever had a decent video release of, I don't even think it even had a public domain video release that I ever saw. I never remember seeing that one on TV when I was growing up or finding it in the in the video stores. Huh. I'm starting to, sure. Mill Creek has it in one of their sets now, right? It could be, but I don't recall ever seeing well, it where 
copy I have is very, very blurry. I'd love to have a better one, but I yeah. don't remember ever seeing it anywhere. I would love to have these films cleaned up, take that hiss out of this. I'm a podcaster, so of course I'm going to hear the sound and, and the hissing in the background. So take some of that out. Not so much because you don't want everything else to get tinny, but take some of that out, clean up the picture. Just, I would love to see that. But who's going to buy it? You know, a handful of monster kids? <laughs> the money in that. You know. That's the thing. I mean, Lugosi does have a very strong and, and passionate fan base. So I suspect if they, even if they put out like a limited set or something and say we're only going to strike so many copies or whatever, I think probably the real diehards would I know I would. Oh, yeah, me too. Somebody start a Kickstarter, restore Ape Man. <laughs> <laughs> the eight man, uh, the eight man double bill. Let's get the eight man and return of the eight man out there. Oh, fantastic! So, uh, yeah, we just now have to find a good print of it to work with, right? Yeah, well, good luck with that because, yeah, like I said uh, most of these films, uh, some of them, some of the public domain uh, DVDs look acceptable. Um, some of the movies seem to look a little bit better than others. Like the Corpse Vanishes seems to look a little bit better. Uh, probably the materials were in better shape, but. The Ape Man's always looked, and, and I think sounded. The sound on the film is, seems a little bit muddy to me, but maybe that's the way it always sounded. I don't know. Yeah, it's hard to tell. And, you know, I'm, I'm not trying to disparage Mill Creek. I have so many Mill Creek collections in my, well, collection. But you know, it would be nice to have it not so compressed, not as one of four or five movies on the same disc. Just looking better, you know? Exactly. I, I, would, I would love to see a company like Kino uh, pick it up. or You know, back in the day, Roan, uh, the Roan Group, was right. some of these movies out. They did uh, White Zombie. Yeah, for years, their White Zombie was the best White Zombie out there. Absolutely. And I know they did. I think uh, I have a DVD of their Dead Man Walk with uh, George Zuko uh, playing twin brothers, one of whom. Oh, that's right. Yeah. I forget what the double, what the, what's on the other side, but they, they did some of those. But there's still a lot of room for improvement, especially now that we're into the uh, high definition era. So I don't, I don't know if we can really handle a high definition ape man. I'm not sure about <laughs> I'll bite your tongue. Sign me up. <laughs> I think it would show up all the all the uh, all the uh, pores in the uh, styrofoam sets beautifully. But they'd be in high def, so <laughs> it's better. It's just automatically better. Of course, of course. Now I'd love to have that. I'd love to have somebody recreate the music or pull the music tracks, but I'm sure none of it really exists. And whether there's even a print of this thing running around anywhere, who, who knows? Poverty Row not like they had a lot of money to archive their own work let alone make their work so no. i couldn't tell you the last time i saw any of these movies on tv now i know when i was you know, in the 80s there used to be shows like um uh, there was a show on channel 11 out of pittsburgh called haunted hollywood and uh, they ran a lot of mostly the universal films but they also had a lot of the public domain movies in so they would have things like the ape man on it. Now, i cannot recall the last time i saw any of these movies just popping up on tv at this point yeah, I'm sure many a horror host has shown the ape man and it's like just because it's public domain, so you don't have to pay for it, but I'm sure it's it's easy to find. If listeners haven't seen it, I'm sure th- I watched it off YouTube, so it's out there. I was say it's probably on there. I'm sure most of these movies are on there and uh, they're they're worth watching. I mean, obviously we're preaching it to the converted probably in in a lot of cases. If you're a Lugosi fan and you haven't seen these movies then there's something wrong with you. I mean, obviously, <laughs> they're easy to see, and how could you pass them up? I mean, like I said, I, I think in, in certain respects, I don't know if you would agree or not, but I, I think that the Ape Man coupled with Frankenstein meets the Wolfman is, is kind of as low as it got for Lugosi in a certain sense in terms of him just being robbed of his dignity. I, I think so, too, especially since you hear about all the Frankenstein was supposed to talk. There was a bit of sabotage that happened there. 
which is unfortunate, you know, but at least he's working. At least he's actually in front of the camera and not having to do something else. He was always working. I mean, I think the misconception is that he was sitting around twiddling his thumbs a lot of the time. I don't think that was really true. I think he was doing a lot of, you know, regional theater, a lot of, uh, you know, sort of summer stock performances and things like that. Uh, he was very busy with arsenic and old lace in the 40s. Um, you know, Karloff originated the role of Jonathan Brewster, but then Lugosi took it over after a certain point. And there were always revivals of Dracula and various other things. So I think he was doing a lot of that, but I don't think that stuff paid him nearly as well as, as a movie would do. And obviously a movie like The Ape Man, it's a starring role for him. It's his name above the title. It's his name big on the poster. It's his name back in the public light where he wanted it to be. So on that level... I don't know if it helped him any, but I think it, it certainly gave him a little bit of pride to know that he was still somewhat in demand. I think that's a good way to end that. You're absolutely right. It, it gave him an opportunity to to be the star, even if his co-star is a guy in a gorilla suit and <laughs> and uh, an Agatha, you know? <laughs> yes, yes, you know. <laughs> I, I, I would have loved to, let's put it this way, I would love to have been a, a fly on the wall uh, on the set of this movie and see what his reaction was to being shown that makeup and, and being asked to stoop over and swing his arms around and, and, and the scene where he gets to fight with the gorilla, the gorilla, it just makes you wonder, but you know, God bless him for, for always trying. <laughs> right. He never gave up. He always kept giving us movies. So, so good for him. Our boy Bela, you know, that's our guy. One of the patron saints of Monster Kid Radio, and I was thrilled to be able to talk about a Lugosi film again on the show. It's been way too long since I've talked about Bela, so it's good to bring him back, even if it's in something like The Ape Man. And it's good to have you on the show, Troy. I know we've been kind of talking about getting you on Monster Kid Radio proper for a while. Like I said, we talked on the Dorado Films thing. It's good to have you here. We'll have to have you back. And when Kaltiki comes out, you know I've already pre-ordered it, right? Well, I hope so. <laughs> I can't wait for that. And is there anything you can tease us with? Any other commentaries or book works or anything coming up for you? Commentary wise, uh, let me think. I mean, we, we mentioned Night of the Scorpion. We mentioned Kaltiki. There are others coming. There are okay. Others I'm going to be recording. I can't mention them yet, but there is more. Uh, right now, uh, Chris Workman and I are continuing work on our Tome of Terror series. Appropriately enough, right now, we're working on the 1940s volume. Once I finish up with that, I also am going to be continuing work on the third volume of So Deadly, So Perverse, which is about the Italian uh, Jallo films. Uh, this third volume is actually about the Jallo-type movies made outside of Italy, so you're going to get everything from sort of Brian De Palma to uh, various uh, even uh, Asian-type films that uh, show a Jallo influence. And uh, I'm also going to be working on a book on Spanish horror icon Paul Nashi. So that's going to be coming as well. And teaming up with another writer to do a book on uh, a beloved TV detective, Columbo. So uh, a lot of different projects in the pipeline and, and a lot of things that um, you know, will be coming out hopefully over the next several years. Fantastic. Well, we'll keep an eye on you, man. I definitely think you're one of the ones to watch in terms of the different books that are coming out and the commentary. So we'll keep an eye on you because I want to be able to say I knew him when. Uh, <laughs> oh, okay. I appreciate that. I, I, I will always make time for the little people. <laughs> thank you very much. I'll try not to take offense to that. Thanks again, Troy. <laughs> thank you for having me. I'd be happy to come back anytime. Just uh, let me know. I put a link in the show notes that you can follow to find all of Troy's books 
on Amazon. It's actually just tinyurl.com slash Amazon Troy. So go check that out. You'll find the listings for the So Dudley, So Perverse books, Real Depravities, the films of Klaus Kinski, the Splinter Visions book, the Tome of Terror book that he talked about, The Haunted World of Mario Bava. All of his books are right there. And he mentioned that he's doing the commentary for the upcoming release of Kaltiki on Blu-ray. He's also the guy who did the commentary for Night of the Scorpion, which is a Dorado Films production. Listeners might know that I used to do a lot of work with Dorado Films, and that is one of the movies that I was excited about them finally bringing out on Blu-ray. So I hope it does really well for them, and I'm interested to hear Troy's commentary track on that. He's mentioned a couple of times on Facebook that he's got a few more commentary deals coming up. Can't really talk about what movies they are, but as soon as he announces them on Facebook, well, I'm sure I'll at least mention it on the Monster Kid Radio Facebook page. Troy, thank you for being part of the show, and we're going to have him on again in the future to talk about another Bela Lugosi movie, another Poverty Row horror film, 1941's Invisible Ghost, and it just came out on Blu-ray. That'll be coming later this year. Here he is. Watch out. For here is a superhuman with the strength of a hundred men. No one and nothing seems able to stop him. Invincible, invulnerable. Argo Man, the fantastic Superman. But even he had his Achilles heel, a beautiful woman's kiss. Kill each other, kill each other. Man, the fantastic Superman. Kill each other. A man gifted with such extraordinary powers that ordinary men were helpless to cope with him. Everyone and everything was pitted against him. From hired killers to the most diabolical inventions of modern science. most beautiful women vied for his favors or the chance to kill him. Kill each other. Man, the fantastic Superman. Here is a picture which will take you on a journey out of time, carry you on a crest of thrills and laughter from start to finish. Be sure to see this Superman power.
miss it. Ages ago, in a long-lost part of the world, the Mayans worshipped a terrifying goddess. To her, men offered their strength and their devotion. Women offered the beauty of their bodies. Tiki, the immortal monster. Today, courageous adventurers, dedicated scientists of both sexes, begin the exploration of recently discovered caverns buried in the very womb of the earth. From space beyond space comes force beyond measurement, energizing this monstrous mass of man-eating protoplasm that devours every living thing it touches. When her mate appears in the sky, the power of Kaltiki will destroy the world. You can believe what you like. Kaltiki's been reborn. Anything on this earth stop Kaltiki, the immortal monster. Christopher, what insanity are you up to today? Oh, hey, Lydia. I'm downloading some movies. What? (laughs) People are always telling me that's illegal. Uh Uh-uh, not these. They're all public domain. Oh, look, Rescue from Gilligan's Island. Let me see what you're doing. Oh, you're at archive.org. Well, they have thousands of films, TV shows, commercials, radio shows, and books available. Yeah, but... There are so many. I wish there was a podcast or something that would discuss these things. You know, give us an idea of what's worth the time. Um, Christopher, there is. We do one. Oh, that's right. We host Orphan Entertainment. Once a month, we pick something and review and discuss it. That sure is nice of us. (laughs) Sure. Why don't you click over to Orphan Entertainment and remind yourself a little more about the show. Oh, will do. Let's see, that's at orphanentertainment.com. And yeah, it looks like we're available on iTunes and Stitcher Radio. Oh, hey, can we review the Gilligan's Island movie someday? Mm-hmm, we'll see, Christopher. We'll see. Welcome to an evening with Karloff, the master of menace in five fight-filled features. Watch breathlessly as the coffin opens to release the terror duck. <laughs> it's only a gallon bowls, the raven. Join Boris Karloff in the most gruesome day of the undead, Black Sabbath. 
Blood-chilling delights. Die, monster, die. And who knows? You may die. Nothing of the comedy of terrors. Five of Carlos. Creepy escapers in nightmare colors. And you are invited. Hey, this is the last time I'm going to mention it this year. Still a couple of days left for you to vote in the Rondo Hatton Classic Horror Awards. Go to rondoaward.com to see what it's all about, but I'll give you the Cliff Notes version. Rondo Awards recognize the best in classic monster movies. Now, a lot of times, modern films and modern television and things like that get nominated as well because, I mean, they appeal to monster kids. But there are so many incredible pieces of media and content involving our beloved classic monster movies on the ballot. I'm talking about Christopher R. Mims' movie, Where Skeeto, up for Best Independent Film. I'm talking about the blog, Collecting Classic Monsters, run by our friend George McGowan. It's up for Best Website or Blog of 2016. Talking about Larry Underwood himself. He's up for best column for The Doctor is Insane, the column that he writes for Scary Monsters magazine. Talking about Mark Maddox. He's been on the show in the past, and he's one of the men behind the Monster Attack podcast. He's up for best magazine cover, not once, not twice, but three times. We're all kind of pulling for his Doctor Who-inspired cover for Mad Scientist magazine. And, of course, Monster Kid Radio is up for best multimedia If you haven't had a chance to check out the Rondo Awards, please get in there and do so before the end of voting. I believe it's April 15th or 16th, so this weekend, really by Friday night, maybe Saturday, you need to get in there and cast your ballot. All you got to do is email T-A-R-A-C-O at AOL.com. The directions are right there, and you don't have to fill out the entire ballot. If you just want to vote for one or two categories, that's fine. Of course, I appreciate your support for Monster Kid Radio, but what we're really pushing for is to get the late Vince Rotolo from the B-Movie cast in the Monster Kid Hall of Fame. This is one of the categories they run every year. It's a complete write-in situation. You can write in Vince's name. And really, the man deserves so much credit for everything that he's done. Like I've said repeatedly online, and others have said as well, without him, horror podcasting would not be the same. Podcasting for classic horror, classic monsters, B-Movies, would not be be the same. The man was a trendsetter, a tastemaker. He was a hell of a good friend. He was an inspiring guy, and he deserves to be in the Monster Kid Hall of Fame. So if nothing else, please consider writing in his name on your email ballot. So that brings us to the end of this week's episode of Monster Kid Radio. What I'd like to do is pose to you a question. We didn't get any email or voicemail this week, so I'm going to try to spark some conversation here. I was speaking with Kelly Hogabom earlier this evening when I should have been editing the show. I was actually chatting with her on Facebook, and she talked about the trailer for the new Mummy movie. Now, Steve Sullivan and I talked about the teaser trailer a while back. I can't remember the episode number, but it's in the archive somewhere. Well, the full-on trailer is now out, and it seems to give a lot away. I'm still hoping that some of the ideas I had, based on what I gathered from the teaser that I saw, come to fruition. But, you know, the trailer that we're seeing now kind of dashes some holes in the theories that I was building up in my own head. Anyway, it seems like it gives so much away, and I don't know if it highlights the mummy enough. And I've been reading some recent interviews from the people behind the Universal Monsters push to do this shared universe that 
they claim these movies are not going to be like the MCU or the DCEU. They're not following the model established by Marvel Comics or what DC is trying to do. Chris Morgan, who's one of the minds behind the entire thing, gave an interview over at Collider, and parts of this interview were shared at SlashFilm.com. Tom Doffel shared this link with me on Facebook. I'm going to put a link in this to the show notes. Anyway, I want to get back to the Mummy trailer. I'm curious what your thoughts are on the trailer now. Now that you've seen the trailer, are your thoughts about the upcoming Mummy movie the same? Have they changed it all? Do you think the trailer gave just way too much away? I'd love to hear what you think. Please feel free to call us at our voicemail line and let me know at 503-479-5657. 503-4795-MKR. Or you can just email me at monsterkidradio at gmail.com. This is also the best way to leave any feedback about anything that you've heard about here on the show about this week's movie or about next week's movie. Next week, I've got returning guest Anthony Wendell coming on to talk about the 1956 film... The Beast of Hollow Mountain. Hold it! Looks like there's been a big struggle around here. Cattle tracks go all directions. See? No one has dared to come this far. Let's time back. You're too superstitious, Benoit. You're afraid of your own shadow. Not my shadow, senor. It's the shadow of that cursed mountain. Here is high adventure. And in the glorious and colorful Southwest. Starring Guy Madison as the courageous rancher who tried to solve the secret of Hollow Mountain, hiding place of a monster spawned in the dawn of time. He dared to ride where no man had ever set foot before. Patricia Medina, the menace of the beast, stood between her and the man she loved. I'm getting married tomorrow. I do not want to be a widow. Or the wife of a murderer, my Between now and then, you can check out our website at monsterkidradio.net. All of our contact information is there. There's links to our Facebook page and our Facebook group. Like the page if you're a user of Facebook, please, and join the group. We have some conversations over there as well. It's where the cool kids hang out. We have links to the form that you can fill out if you want to be a guest on Monster Kid Radio. A link to our letterbox page, which lists every movie that we've talked about here on the show, as well as the... 1951 Down Place podcast that I used to produce with Scott Morris and Casey Criswell. Well, guess what, ladies and gentlemen? This weekend, I'm recording with Scott Morris for an upcoming episode of 1951 Down Place. That's coming. Stay tuned for that. Anyway, at our website, you're also going to find links to our Patreon page where you can become a patron of Monster Kid Radio and help support the show that way. Bottom line is, this is where you're going to find everything you need to know about the podcast. Head over to Facebook to talk with other listeners of the podcast and, well, me. Now, at this point, I've got like six episodes of Monster Kid Radio already in the virtual can. Over the next week or so, I'll be announcing on Monster Kid Radio what the next few weeks look like, what some of the upcoming episodes are going to be, which week you can expect them in. So I'm going to give you episode numbers, who the guests are, that sort of thing. So if you want to plan ahead, maybe watch some of the movies that we're going to be talking about and call in your feedback, well, I'd love to include you in the mix. Until next week, remember that Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 3.0, unported license. Of course, that doesn't apply to the song Beach Leech. That belongs to the Nova Scotia surf band, The Island Girls. You can find them on Facebook at facebook.com slash The Island Girls Music, or look them up on Bandcamp, where you can pick up their self-titled album, 11 tracks 
buy now, name your price. Yeah, I mean, that's a heck of a deal, right? And it's some great music. I'm a big fan of Beach Leech. I hope you guys and gals dig it too. I'm going to talk to everybody next week. My name is Derek M. Cook. Ciao. Mm-hmm.